Hello everyone and welcome back to the Mysterious Benedict Society Read Aloud Podcast Book 3. Today's episode 14 and we'll be reading chapter 14, but first a recap of chapter 13. The children are hurrying to the library in hopes of finding Constance inside, which they did. Yay, the gang is back together again. When returning back to the taxi to find Mr. Benedict and the sentries, the children found them gone. They thought he might have gone back to the library to search for them since they left a note, but he wasn't there either. The children finally decide to open the secret instructions that were given to the Tin Men. The instructions indicated a place the Tin Men were to meet, and they were to meet with a high official that is the key to everything, as Mr. Curtin said. Kate decided to go ahead and find a good overlooking spot to watch the Tin Men. After she left, Rennie had a weird feeling, and he discovered that Mr. Curtin had really not been covering up his tracks well, and that Kate was walking straight into a trap. Okay, that's the end of the summary, but before we begin, I have a shout-out to give to Clara. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much for your very sweet voice message. Okay, let's begin. Enjoy the episode. Chapter 14. Breakable Codes and Findable Clues This time, despite the rising feeling of panic in his gut, Rennie remembered to leave a better note. Scribbling as fast as he could, he explained everything to Mr. Benedict, folded the paper together with Mr. Curtin's note, stapled them both closed, and ran out the front door of the library, where he did his best to explain himself to the startled security guard. He was forced to trust the man. He had little choice. But he kept his request simple. If someone came looking for the children, would the guard please pass along this note and say it was urgent? Then, just as Kate had done to Rennie minutes before, Rennie sprinted away before the confused man could argue. Sticky and Constance were waiting behind the library. He had told them he would explain everything, and so he did, speaking between gasps, for three of them were running full tilt. The boys took turns giving Constance piggyback rides, and sometimes she ran over her own legs, but they all knew that even with their best effort, they could never catch Kate. They only hoped to reach her before the ten men did. Perini saw now in his mind's eye all the pieces of a puzzle that earlier he had not even known existed. The first piece had been Mr. Bain's odd behavior upstairs. Rennie realized now that Mr. Bain had been waiting to tell them privately and specifically about Crawling's leaving the girls' room. He needed to make sure they went in and discovered the torn-up note. No doubt the ten men had called him and told him what to do. The second puzzle piece was the note itself. Yes, Crawling's was careless, and Mr. Burton probably knew the children knew this, but would he really have left those instructions in the waste paper basket? Not without expecting them to be found. And then there was McCracken. He hadn't seemed to expect to find anything in the monk building. He'd even said the office must be searched, if only as a matter of form. In other words, the search had to appear to explain why they'd been there. That was their stated reason, Rennie thought grimly, but their real reason had been something quite different. It was the same reason that McCracken, normally so cautious, had not objected when crawling through the watered extractions away in the office. He'd even dropped the envelope to the floor himself. Breakable codes and findable clues. Everything had been done on purpose. Mr. Curtin knew what the children were like. He knew they would take risks to stop him if given a chance. And so, quite cleverly, careful not to overdo it, he had given them that chance, had left them a trail they couldn't resist following. Hadn't they overheard Crawlings and Garrett saying that Mr. Curtin had a plan for catching them? Well, this was it. And most distressing of all was that it was still working. Kate was running right into a trap, and her friends were running right after her. He had nothing to lose, Rennie panted as they moved down a crowded sidewalk, keeping close together near the wall. And everything to gain. He knows where Mr. Benedict's greatest weakness. That's how he sees it. And if he catches us, he can use us to get whatever he wants. There was no reason not to try. He hasn't even put himself at risk. 
So they were hoping to lure us into the monk building, but they didn't know about the anteroom? Siggy asked, still trying to make sense of what Rennie was telling them. Rennie stopped to let Siggy take over carrying Constance, who suddenly seemed to weigh more than a piano. If they had known, he said, starting off again, they'd have grabbed us right then, wouldn't they? McCracken mentioned something about roofs. I think he had ten men hidden all around the building to keep an eye out for us. He was hoping we'd come running up the street. When we didn't show, they knew to leave another clue just in case. But what if we had told Mr. Benedict, Stiggy asked. Mr. Bain made it hard for us to do that, didn't he? But I'm sure Mr. Curtin was prepared for that possibility. Maybe he even hoped for it. Maybe he hoped Mr. Benedict would fall for the trick too and walk right into his ambush. Those instructions didn't leave much time to consider everything, just enough to make a snap decision and rush to the scene. Like Kate did, Stiggy said, his voice thin with strain. He hitched Constance high on his back, and we did. The first time, we just got lucky, Rennie said. We could use a secret passage. This time, we just have to hope we have, have enough of a head start. However badly they needed the head start, it was hard work running on the crowded sidewalks and trying to keep it together, and they were soon forced to stop and catch their breath. Hands on his knees, Rennie looked up at the street signs. There were only four blocks from the square. Beside him, Sticky was just about to set Constance down when she cried, I see Crawlings and Garrett! Rennie straightened abruptly, and the blood rushed to his head. Desperately trying to blink away stars, he followed Constance's gaze. In a moment, he spotted the ten men on the opposite corner, just about to step off the curb into a crush of pedestrians. They were laughing and talking, swinging their briefcases as if headed to do out something more of a proactive day of work. He glanced quickly around. This way, he said, making for a subway station entrance a dozen paces away, and Sticky, fairly stumbling, followed close behind. Did they see us? Rennie said as he hurried down the steps. I don't think so, said Constance, who had been looking over her shoulder. It was very dark, and Rennie stopped at the first landing, unsure of his footing. His eyes were still adjusting to the gloom. Sticky dropped Constance beside him and fell gasping to his knees. Below them, far away from the shifting glare of a thousand headlights, the steps ascended into even deeper darkness. Together they stared fearfully up at the open entrance. Seven or eight people followed past, jostling and bumping one another. And then Crawlings and Garrett appeared. Rennie knew they would be almost impossible to see down here. Yet he suddenly felt so sure of being spotted, he could almost hear the Timmons' voices echoing down the landing. Oh, chickies, here, chickies! But the men didn't even glance in their direction, and an instant later had passed out of view. Rennie fell back against the wall. Sticky lowered his head to the floor. For a few moments, the only sound they made was heavy breathing, and their only feeling was one of intense relief. Then Constance said, Well, what do we do now? They're ahead of us. Oh no, Sticky groaned, hauling himself to his feet again. I hadn't gotten that far yet. What do we do? The next step we stop is in the square, Rennie said. He peered down the steps into the blackness. And there's no crowd down there. We might even move faster than we could on the streets. You mean run through a pitch black subway tunnel, Constance said. Are you out of your mind? I'm starting to feel that way, said Rennie. He had perceived a faint blue glow at the bottom of the steps. And without waiting for more objections, he hurried down toward it. The tunnel was their only hope, but only if they moved now and as fast as they could. Come on, Siggy said, grabbing Constance's hand. The blue light turned out to be a subway system employee carrying an emergency glow stick. He was a pale, skinny man in a white uniform, and in the weird light he looked ghastly and strange, an apparition drifting up from the abyss. Subway's closed, kid, he said as they approached. I'm the last one out. Worried do you want to do it on here anyway? Don't you realize there's a blackout? Subways don't run in blackouts, you know. Can we have your glow stick? asked Rennie quickly. We're scared and we don't have flashlights. The man seemed torn. He turned and looked back into the blackness, out which he had just emerged. 
There's a whole box of them on the platform. I was giving them out to the passengers. But to tell you the truth, it gives me the willies down there in the dark. And if you don't mind... Thanks, Rennie said, and to the man's astonishment, he snatched the glow stick and hurried down to the darkness with Sticky and Constance at his heels. What? Oh, okay, uh, I'll, I'll wait for you here, the man called after them, or actually just, I'll be up there on top of the steps, where it isn't so dark. They paid him no attention. In moments, they had ducked under the turnstiles and reached the station platform, where they found the box of glow sticks and helped themselves. Sticky lowered himself into the tracks, and Rennie lowered Constance down to him, his arms trembling so much he almost dropped her. I really don't want to be doing this, said Constance, staring into the blackness. Just keep talking, said Sticky. Maybe that'll scare the rats away. Their passage through the black tunnel was frightening indeed, with their glow sticks casting faint, strange shadows and the noises of unknown origin sounding in the dark. And when not far along the tracks, they came suddenly upon the abandoned train, like some monstrous creature lying in the dark, and they all cried out at once. They collected themselves and dashed past it, past car after empty car, expecting at any moment for someone or something to peer through a window at them, or worse, to leap out at them. But they got beyond it, and indeed, all the way to Fern Square Station, without incident. We made good time, Rennie puffed as they mounted the station steps. We might just have a chance. They wheezed out their plan as they ran, and when they reached the street entrance, they lost no time. Rennie knelt down and Sticky helped Constance onto his shoulders. He stood up shakily and Sticky supporting him, until Constance had a fairly decent view of the square. See anything? he gasped. Or, you know, sense anything? Constance was looking all around. I don't, but it's so crowded. We'll have to chance it, said Rennie, already laying her down again. Into the square they plunged, weaving through people on the sidewalks, laborlessly making their way through the crush to the pitfall building. The observation deck, three stories up, could be seen but dimly, a wide-windowed outcropping whose outline was barely evident against the starry sky. It had been designed to offer the best view of the historic square, high enough to position the observer above street-level obstacles, low enough to eliminate the need for coin-operated telescopes. But it might have well been specifically designed as a trap. Because it was enclosed, there could be no shadow warnings to Kate, nor would any cries for help be heard from inside it. At last, their hearts pounding, their lungs and legs burning, Rennie, Constance, and Sticky reached the front door of the pitfall building. It was a sort of door that could be locked only electronically, and since it had not been locked when the power went out, the building usually remained open until late. It was conveniently unlocked now. Conveniently, Rennie thought, as if he were setting a trap for a certain headstrong girl. Upon passing through this door in the weak glow of emergency lighting, Kate would have seen what they saw now, a hand-printed sign on the security desk that said, Observation deck closed until further notice, and another that said, Gone for batteries back in 15 minutes. Kate would have been thrilled when he realized, no need to sneak past the security guard or concoct some false explanation for needing to access the deck. She could just board up the stairs and get situated with her spyglass. Rennie headed for the stairs, propelling by urgency, yet trembling with fatigue and terrible mounting dread. They were exhausted, there was no time for rest, and the instant they reached Kate, they must turn right around and run out again. Could they possibly make it? Would it be better to try to hide somewhere in the building? No, that would be faster, but then the ten men could simply block the exits and make a thorough floor-by-floor -floor search. They had to get out. I can't keep up, Constance huffed from several steps below. She was struggling valiantly, using both her hands and feet to climb, but was hardly moving at all. I'll stay with her, Siggy said, waving Rennie on. We'll wait for you here. Hurry. Rennie didn't waste breath answering. He had none to spare, but pressed on as quickly as he could. He had reached the second floor landing now, only twenty more steps to go. It felt like a hundred, but at last he stood on the third floor landing, staring at the door to the observation deck, its sign illuminated by a buzzing emergency bulb. 
He gathered himself, pushing away the frightening thought that he might be too late, and flung the door open. Instantly, a flashlight shone into his eyes. Rennie, whispered Kate's voice, what are you doing here? A trap, Rennie gasped. We have to... He was interrupted by the sound of shouting in the stairwell. A scream, a scuffling sound, a man's voice crying. She bit me. That naughty little duck bit me. And another man laughing and saying, Proper caution, growlings. Will you never learn? Come up sharp. Give me a hand with Mr. Spectacles. Garrett, you take this. Kate lowered her flashlight. Rennie could see her round eyes. There was no further explanation necessary. He shook his head helplessly, his heart in his throat. They had been so close. Hide this, Kate hissed, reaching into her bucket. She handed him a rope, still neatly coiled as he hurriedly tucked it under her shirt and slipped something else into his front pocket, her Swiss army knife. Then she leaped back, shouting, What's going on, Rennie? Who's out there? An enormous figure appeared in the doorway. The floor groaned beneath his weight. Oh dear, said McCracken. Oh dear, oh dear. Were you not expecting us? Tell me, said McCracken, setting down his briefcase. Did you leave a note telling your mommies and daddies where you were going? I assume you didn't have permission to come here alone. What do you think, said Kate, irritated that she couldn't think of a more cunning reply. McCracken tapped two fingers together. What do I think? I think we better leave soon, but first let us get reacquainted. The other ten men sauntered in with their captives. Constance was still struggling, her teeth clicking audibly as she tried to bite Sharp and Garrett, each of whom had a hand under one of her arms. Her feet, several inches off the floor, kicked futilely this way and that, as if she were dancing. Sticky, for his part, walked sullenly along under his own power. Behind him came Crawlings with a furious expression and sucking his thumb, which Constance had bitten, so that he looked like a giant toddler on the verge of a tantrum. The smell of expensive cologne hung heavy in the air. Constance, my dear, said McCracken, if you don't stop trying to bite my associates, I'm afraid we'll have to start your nap time. Constance glowered at him and stopped struggling. McCracken broke into a teeth of grin. Ah, much better. I see you've had some dental work done, said Kate pointedly, for she remembered with no small satisfaction that McCracken had lost teeth in his last encounter with Milligan. Ever the cheeky one, said McCracken, still grinning. He flicked one of his front teeth with his tongue. It popped out and nearly fell into his hand. Squeezing it between two fingers, McCracken stepped close to show Kate the tiny, sharp serotins now protruding from its edges. He held it close to her face, but Kate did not shy away. She lifted an eyebrow, doing her best to appear unimpressed. McCracken nodded and stopped squeezing the tooth. Black market dentistry, he inched as the sharp points retracted. You'd be surprised. Now, my dear, I need you to set down your bucket, turn out your pockets, and hand over your shoes. You mustn't think I've forgotten what a clever girl you are. To resist would be pointless, not to mention painful. And Kate did as she was told. McCracken inspected her shoes and tossed them back to her. Better give us that belt, too, he said, warily eyeing the buckle. Finally satisfied, he handed Kate's bucket and belt to Crawlings and said, Very well, darlings, let's move along. Where are we going? Rennie demanded. He was trying to formulate a plan. If he could goad McCracken into giving him some information. McCracken looked at him intently. Goodness, you seem frightened, Rennie. Are you worried about what terrible things we'll do? He bent forward and spoke in a hushed, sing-tongue tone, as if offering instructions to a much younger child. What you need to worry about, Rennie, is not what terrible things we'll do, but when we'll do them. And the answer is, if you're very good, is perhaps never. But if you're the least bit naughty, then the answer is right now. Do you understand? Rennie swallowed and nodded. The other ten men laughed. Mr. Curtin prefers that you be awake, alert, and out of reasonably sound mind when we deliver you, McCracken said. But we have permission to wipe your little noses with our handkerchiefs, should circumstances require it. 
Rennie was at a loss for what to do with them. And then ten men were so brisk and efficient, not to mention intimidating, that the children had been hustled downstairs, out a back door, and into a waiting van before anyone could think of a productive way to resist. Then the doors were slammed shut, and it was too late. My name is Garrett, and I'll be your driver today, said Garrett, grinning impishly from behind the wheel, as McCracken squeezed into the passenger seat. The other ten men chuckled and took the seats within the back with the children. Don't forget to buckle up. We want a safe and pleasant ride. You may as well get comfortable, sweets, murmured Sharp, folding up his spectacles and closing his eyes. We'll be riding around a while. It turned out that by a while, Sharp meant several hours. Miserable, interminable hours, during which the children were not allowed to move or speak as the cra- van crept along the jammed city streets. And all the while, the ten men seemed completely relaxed. They sat calm, comfortably, sometimes dozing, though never all at once, sometimes engaging in amiable chatter. From time to time, one would rise to peer out the windows of the back door of the van, then return to his seat, smiling to himself. Rennie spent the first part of this long ride trying to calm down and come up with a plan. He was having trouble with it, both. His nerves were shot, his mind was fatigued, his body was exhausted. But after more than an hour of searching for bright spots, Rennie suddenly had an encouraging thought. Their situation was undeniably awful, but wasn't it also an opportunity? After all, they were being taken to Mr. Curtin, and Mr. Benedict needed to find Mr. Curtin. Rennie began to get excited. If he just played close attention to where they were taken, then found a way to let Mr. Benedict know, there had to be some way. The table would be turned. Not only could they be rescued, but Mr. Curtin could be captured one from for all. Heartened by this idea, Rennie glanced around me to give his friends convert looks of encouragement. To his surprise, he found them all dozing, their heads lowing heavily on their necks. He almost laughed. Even considering all they had been through, it was hard to imagine sleeping at a time like this. And then, in less than a minute, Rennie had joined them. And like them, he slept the following hours, repeatedly jolting awake, finding himself miserable, cramped, and scared, then scumbling yet again to the powerful need for sleep. This happened over and over again, and as time passed strangely between the weird dreams, Rennie experienced while sleeping, and the very real, equally weird nightmare he faced each time he awoke. But eventually, finally, this cycle ended, the van stopped. It idled in one place for much longer than it had done before, and Rennie, noticing this, slowly grew alert. Despite the hours of driving, they were still downtown. Through the high windows and the back doors, he could see a distant traffic light. But something had changed, and after a moment, he realized what it was. The traffic light was red, the power was back on, and the night's unusual darkness was giving way to familiar gray dawn. "'Good morning, sunshine,' Sharp yawned, resettling his spectacles and scratching his head. He sprayed a misty breath freshener into his mouth and smiled sleepily at the bleary children. In the front of the van, McCracken's radio cackled, and a man's voice, when he recognized it with a shiver, said, "'What is your status?' "'We have secured the goods and await your orders,' McCracken replied. Mr. Curtin's gleeful tone was unmistakable, even through the radio. "'You secured the goods? Confirm that you secured the goods.' Confirmed, McCracken said, laughing. We have indeed secured the goods. Then proceed to base at once, Mr. Curtin barked, followed by a screechy sound that someone else might have thought the radio interference, but that Rennie recognized as Mr. Curtin's laugh. McCracken tucked his radio into his suit coat and nodded at Garrett, who instantly swerved across the sidewalk and into a parking garage, zooming up to the first empty level. Garrett and Crawlings leaped out of the van with boxes under their arms. At once there came a banging overhead and a prolonged scratching noise rather like the sound of a person unstripping package tape. Meanwhile, McCracken and Sharp were taking out blindfolds and securing them over the children's eyes, and Rennie's hopes were plummeting, so much for paying close attention to where they were going. Mr. Curtin's order, said McCracken in a falsely apologetic tone. One can never be too careful. Garrett and Crawlings got back in. 
We'll make good time now, Garrett called back to them cheerfully. Just listen to this. He threw a switch, and overhead a siren began to wail. The ten men had disguised the van as an ambulance. When the siren blamed, the van was able to move steadily through the city, occasionally slowing but never stopping, until at last having pulled free of the heavier traffic, the siren was turned off. The van moved swiftly now, its tires hummed on an open highway. But which highway, Randy wondered, headed to where? Little bunny, McCracken said to someone, you had best stop wriggling your eyebrows. If that blindfold slips loose, you will most sincerely regret it. That had to be Kate, Rennie thought. He'll for her sake that she would do as she was told. They were already in deep enough trouble, and Rennie could see no way out of it. Mm-hmm.